The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Welcome to the Broadcast Dialogue Podcast, the show all about the media industry in Canada. Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Sean Smith. Fred Vale is one of those music industry characters that you can easily categorize as a legend. He was with the Beach Boys as their manager in the early days, and he parlayed that experience into a promotions position with Capitol Records before founding Nashville's Treasure Isle Studios some 35 years ago. Fred, welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. It's a great pleasure to spend some time with you. Tell me, what brought you to Nashville in the first place? Well, it goes back a number of years. When I was managing the Beach Boys back in 69-70, we actually made a distribution deal with a Nashville-based label, Starday King. Starday was a historic country label. King was the historic R&B label out of Cincinnati that gave us James Brown and a number of others. So I was coming here on business to meet with a distributor, and I kind of had it in the back of my head that, hey, if I ever got free and left the West Coast and was looking around for a place to go, Nashville might be a, you know, a, a great place to land. And uh, about five years later, I ended up here due to a couple of um, circumstances. I had left the boys in 71, 72, went to work for Capital, left Capital to go to work for RCA. And while I was at RCA, I I got to work with one of my heroes, Waylon Jennings. And Waylon and I hit it off immediately. Uh, Back in those days, this is 40 plus years ago, record labels had no definitive specialty staffs. In other words, we we did um, the full catalog. We we did the full uh, number of releases, regardless of genre or format. So we worked R&B, we worked country, we worked pop, we worked classical, we worked everything that the label had to offer. And unfortunately, for country music's sake, rock dominated that era, particularly with sales. And of course, record labels live on sales and catalog, and they were more interested in us pushing David Bowie or Lou Reed or right. Elvis than they were pushing Will and Jennings and uh, Dickie Lee and Charlie Pride because it was all numbers to them. They were right. bean counters and, and they looked at it from that aspect. So when uh, Waylon and a few of the other country artists, uh, you know, found out that I not only n- had a passion for country, but knew about it, having been a country DJ and program director years ago, um, they immediately, you know, linked up with me. I mean, we became buddies. And Whalen told me, he said, Fred, if you ever leave Nipper, which is the name of the mascot of the RCA logo, if you ever leave Nipper, you know, before you go back to California, come through Nashville and visit with me. We'll try to figure out a way to keep you here. So that's what happened in April of 1974. I went to Nashville. I looked up uh, Whalen, who had just set up a label in a publishing company with Tom Paul Glaser. And they uh, talked with me and uh, Waylon basically put it on the table. He said, Fred, I can't offer you a lot, but I'll give you 150 bucks a week and an office and a telephone. If you can take on other projects to make ends meet, all the power, just don't forget old Waylon. And that's what happened in 74. And sure enough, you know, the other artists began to 
come in as far as independent marketing promotion. I worked with Clapton and Living Newton John and John Travolta and the Great Grease soundtrack. I worked with George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic. You know, I, I just made it work. Uh, Jimmy Dean, the legendary singer and the Hall of Fame member, Alabama and their initial releases on GRT, Earl Thomas Connolly. I mean, I, I really had the timing was absolutely perfect, Sean. And and, you know, here I am, what, uh, 44 years later, I'm still in Nashville. Well, Treasure Isle itself, uh, 38 years, we've worked with over 110 members of the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So it's easier for me to say who we haven't worked with than who we have. But we work with, you know, some of the legendary artists of, of the uh, 20th and now 21st century. Now, you, your your timing, as you say, was seems like in retrospect, it was impeccable. Studios uh, at the time when you jumped in were still very much a key part of the ecosystem in Nashville and in the recording industry. Um and to a degree still are, of course, but um, what was it about the recording uh, aspect of the industry that lured you in? Well, like I said, timing, because I was kind of burnt out on doing record promotion and marketing. But as far as the studio, I always loved the attraction of the recording studio, because this is where a song or a legend is born. Uh, I call it the basic tool. Some people call them sound palaces. But this is where the action is. And Nashville actually, believe it or not, was a little bit late getting into the studio scene. Recording started with Edison's phonograph in 1877. And it wasn't until approximately 70 years after that, and about 21 years after the Grand Old Opry debuted in Nashville, that we got our first dedicated studio. And we did some recording, WSM Radio. We used their studio in the early years. Eddie Arnold was part of that, and um, Francis Craig, and they used the WSM studios. Then we got our first dedicated studio in 1946, and then in 55, we got the great uh, Quonset Hut, the Bradley Brothers, and then in 57, RCA Studio B. And then it just kept growing, you know, from, you know, from that point. Now, I understand at the beginning that... Um some of the people that were working in the studios were actually radio people or engineers and so on yeah, that were just exactly, moonlighting. Exactly. Um, and, and so yeah. that's what, that's a part of this that's really interesting to me is how um, in Nashville, uh, when the studios first popped up, people were kind of being entrepreneurial about it, stretching their skills right. and learning the craft of recording at the same time. But yet, here it is at the epicenter of the business. And what we have in a very short period of time is an exceptional prowess at the technique of recording. How, how it must've been some really, really, really uh, interesting times at the beginning. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, believe it or not, you made the reference that they were radio engineers that started the uh, studio industry here. Uh, and they were. There were three guys from WSM Radio that were involved with the Grand Old Opry at the Ryman, and they were involved in, you know, running uh, WSM. And they moonlighted. They set up a studio in a hotel ballroom or part of a ballroom, and they opened up in 46. And within a year or two, they saw a future, but they were approached by WSM, who basically told them, hey, you guys are spending way too much time moonlighting at your day job you got to make a decision are you going to keep the paycheck and keep the benefits of working for wsm and national life and accident insurance are you are you going to um you know give up your studio and and keep that or are you going to 
leave because you you know we 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 can't have you doing both. So they decided to keep the pay, the, the paycheck. They decided to to stay with WSM and and you know which is the way it is in life. I mean a lot of people don't gamble. You know they have families, they have obligations, they uh, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush so to speak, and mm-hmm. they just move you know they move on. So it it was short time after that about oh probably eight or nine years that we got a really great studio the quad the quad uh, the uh, Quonset Hut which was uh, became uh, CBS Studio or Columbia Studio and that was the Bradley Brothers who were both musicians Owen was a conductor arranger keyboard player Brad Harold was a great guitar player probably one of the most recorded guitar players in the history of Nashville they opened up their studio in uh, 1955 uh, CBS bought it from them in 62 it stayed open until 82 Chet and Steve Chet Atkins and Steve Schultz started RCAB in 57 it stayed open for 20 years to 77 and now it's a tourist attraction it's run by the Country Music Hall of Fame and Foundation and I just went by there about an hour and a half ago and little buses take you over from the Hall of Fame and you tour the studio and you hear the great music that came out of the studio and you learn the story of how natural became music city usa and the cycle was a lot uh faster too wasn't it people were in the studio a couple of times a year and cranking out you know two oh albums yeah and, yeah well yeah. i mean it was all about singles sean you oh, know i mean right. when i was growing up in the in the in the 50s and early 60s it was all about the single i could buy a single record of elvis a pat boone of everly brothers you know a charlie pride of brenda well not charlie pride but brenda lee uh, I could buy one for 89 cents. That was the cost of a 45 RPM, seven inch single and an album with 399 that typically had 12 songs, uh, six on each side. And so I bought a lot of singles because to me, buying an album was a big deal. And then I made the mistake one time I bought this album by a guy named Carl Dobkins Jr. And it was a great single on the radio. It's called My Heart is an Open Book. And I loved it. So I went out and bought the album. I got back from the store. And I put it on, and that was the only great song on the album. The rest was what they call filler. I, I was so disappointed mm-hmm. that I went back to buying singles again because mm-hmm. I knew what I was buying because I was hearing them on the radio. But the shelf life then, the time that you would play it on the radio back in those days, was about eight weeks. Amarillo Sky, which is one of the best records we've ever recorded at our studio, Jason Aldean, they played that record for over a year. You know, between it being a current and a recurrent and an oldie, they played it for over a year. And it's a great song. I love it every time I hear it. But a year for a record on the radio to me is just way too long. I'd rather see a little bit of turnover. Why do you think that is, Fred? Do you think we need more um, inventory in the system, so to speak, uh, to speed that cycle up? Well, you need expanded playlists for one thing. I mean, Uh when I was a PD in 1961 i was 17 years old and i was midday guy during summer and i was the pd and and the reason why i was the pd ironically jack lawson the operations manager who was in those days the operations guy was the boss he was the guy that did the air checks did the hiring did the firing the program director did the music you know nowadays you've got program directors that do the hiring and firing and music directors that do the music but that back then in 61 it was the other way and one of the reasons jack hired me was my brother and i had more country records than the radio station <laughs> it was an am fm it was what they call simulcast and yeah. it was primarily a pop station so even though it occasionally would play a marty robbins or would play a don gibson or would play a johnny cash because they were crossing over to you know pop radio or patsy klein typically they were playing about 90 percent you know rock and roll I was living the dream back then. I was going to sessions, not knowing 
that 40 plus years later, you know, I'd have my own studio. Well, actually 20, 20 plus years later, I'd have my own studio and I would still have it 40 plus years later. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I went to some great sessions. I mean, this is where a song is born, you know, or a record is born in the studio and seeing five or six musicians and a, a great song and a, and a great singer singing that song and great engineers and technical personnel and a great sounding room, seeing it take life in a studio is like nothing I can even explain. It's like magic. You know, you, you hear this rough guitar demo and all of a sudden, you know, an hour or so later, it sounds like it ought to be on the radio. Well, it's not quite to that point because of overdubs and mixing and sure. vocal tuning and all that sort of stuff. But 35 years, 35 hours later, it's ready to be on the radio, if you're lucky. Now, Fred, um, what is the most remarkable um, thing you've ever seen in the studio with regard to working with an artist? Anything come to mind? Seeing a song come together. You know, I mean, when a song is typically when it's played for the musicians and in, in the early days in L.A., they had a group of musicians called the Wrecking Crew. Mm -hmm. And these guys floated from studio to studio, artist to artist, label to label. And they they were putting together all the great records, whether it was Frank Sinatra, whether it was the Beach Boys or Jan and Dean or the Mamas and the Papas. You know, they were they were doing them all. And in the case of the Beach Boys, they were supplementing the Beach Boys, who also were musicians in their own right. Carl was a great guitar player. Denny was a really good drummer and became a much better drummer after all their live concert touring. Uh, Brian played bass and also piano, but he left that usually to Carol Kay, who's a fantastic bass player. And, you know, you'd see a record come to life, and, and that's the way I saw good vibrations unfold. I mean, I was at the session, and it was actually it was several sessions. To see a song unfold from the basic demo, which is the way the musicians first listen to it, in the control room typically, and it could be just a guitar and a vocal, or it could be a keyboard and a vocal, but it's very, very basic. And then to see a song emerge, whether it's an hour later or 35 or 40 hours later, it's it's just an amazing uh, thing to behold. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly magical. What's the shortest one you can remember in terms of the time when you started tape and, and you ended up with something that was fully formed? Well, if you're going to do a radio master, you know, something that you're going to play in a radio station, something that they're going to press up and put into stores or on iTunes or whatever. You know, I, I've never been involved with anything at this studio that took less than 20, 25 hours. I mean, it just takes that long because, you know, when Elvis was recording, when Roy Orbison was recording, when Brenda Lee was recording back in those days, Everly Brothers. You did it in, in, in live Sinatra. You did it at Capitol Records. He would go in with a full orchestra and a rhythm section and background singers. They would do it live. And now, you know, because of technology and because of the musicians and singers who want to have perfection, you do it in tears. And, and you know, that's the way a, a song or a record takes life. That's the way it happens. Well, after 40 years of owning a studio, what can you track for us? basically the changes that you've seen uh since say the early 80s up until now uh in the well, nashville recording scene yeah the biggest change well there's two or three changes okay technology has changed substantially you know mm. you've got pro tools uh instead of recording on analog tape like in the old days uh we still have analog and we still use it we still have a two-inch analog we have actually 48 track analog Marvelous. recording 
and we still use it on Aldine, but very, very few studios, not only do they not have analog recording anymore, but the kids that are coming out of the colleges and the trade schools don't even know that technology. No. They don't even know that format. They're used to doing it what we call in the box, which means a keyboard and a monitor and a mouse. Okay, Fred, you've spent a lot of your years as a futurist and being at the forefront of the industry. Look into your crystal ball. Where is it all going over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? You know, well, I'll tell you what's what's really cool, Sean. Um, believe it or not, my daughter just turned 19 a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she's a freshman at Cornell. And for about the last five years, for about the last five years, her two things that she's wanted every Christmas, these are the, you know, that hasn't changed at all the last five years. She's wanted group merchandise, bracelets and t-shirts and hoodies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And she's wanted vinyl records. So she was using my phonograph in our living room. And then uh, last Christmas, she said, I want my own phonograph. So I went and I was never more proud to buy her her own phonograph. Fantastic. You know, so she can enjoy vinyl. You sure. know, because vinyl's making a huge comeback. All I know is there's nothing like a bunch of musicians going into a, a recording studio and, and, and music comes to life and you create a legacy. I mean, we've, we've done so many artists. And I, I've, I tell people the story. And they say, well, you know, I'm 74, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all my friends are retired. All the kids I went to school with, my oldest, dearest friend, Tyke McConnell, just died literally 10 days ago, as you and I speak, or Bless roughly two, 10 days ago. He's my oldest friend. We grew up together, went mm-hmm. to third grade on. And he, he retired years ago, you know, and he's got grandkids, right? Well, I've got a 19-year-old daughter away <laughs> at school. Yeah. But what's what's really cool is the fact that, I still remember when I got hooked on a live performance by a country artist, and it was in 1957. My brother said, you know, I'm, I'm 12 years old now, and my brother's 15. He's three years old now. And there's this artist coming to town. It's on a weekend. It's on an afternoon. And my brother said, well, let's get mom and dad to take us downtown, and let's go see this act. So they leave us off. We climb the steps into the ballroom, up to the top of the steps. There's a little ticket booth. We paid a buck and a half. And we went in this old World War II ballroom, and at one end, there was a concession stand, and at the other end, there was a stage. There was no fixed seating. There were a few folding chairs around the perimeter. It was a wood floor. People went there to dance. That's mm-hmm. what they went there for. So we run down to the stage, and we park ourselves at the foot of the stage, and the curtain's still drawn, and, and the curtain opens up, and there are three of them, one microphone, the guy in the middle plays an acoustic. He steps up to the mic, and it's, hi, I'm Johnny Cash. And... <laughs> That was my introduction to country music, right? Yowza. All the great rockabilly songs, Rock Island Line, Give My Love to Rose, Cry, 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 Ballad of a Teenage Queen. This is how I was introduced to country music. So then I enter the music business after being with the Beach Boys and after being with RCA and Capitol. And then I come to Nashville. And then, I, you know, in 1980, I start the studio. And in 1982, this new studio is done. And we're ready to christen the studio. And Marty Stewart is producing Johnny Cash, and he picks our studio. So 25 years after paying a buck and a half to see Johnny Cash in the Tennessee Two, the legend, the man in black, the icon, the member of the Country Music Hall of Fame is in my studio recording an album. 
Life is a wonderful it thing. It doesn't get Fred. any better than that. No, it doesn't get it any doesn't better. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, Fred, you use the word legacy. You have created a legacy, my friend. When are we going to see a book from you? It's time. <laughs> ask my wife. She just brought it up last night. Ask, ask my friend Dick Andrews. Whenever I do a post on my Facebook page, you know, he says, book, 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 because yeah, book. I, I tell all these stories on my Facebook page. And I said, well, if you want to read the book, just go back to my Facebook. Well, post. there it is. The there's, book. But, there's the first, you know, book. I, I need to do one. I'm about halfway through it. Um, I've got a name for it. It's called Between Hits because my story, the big things, you know, the Beach Boys and Shannon Dean and Ray Peterson, who was my idol when I was, you know, barely. God, I think I was about 14 years old. I heard this voice on the radio singing Fever. The guy had a four and a half octave range and perfect pitch, and his name was Ray Peterson. Uh, Fever was not a big record by him, but his follow-up records, The Wonder of You and and uh, Tell Laura I Love Her and Karina Karina were huge hits. So uh, about four years after that, I hire Ray to do a concert, and I suggest that Murray and the Beach Boys hire him to open for them, and they do. And we built a relationship over the following 40 plus years. And then when he passed away, um, I ended up giving the eulogy to his funeral. So, you know, it's just stuff like that. But you're right. It's Between Hits is the name of the book. And what I've got to do is I've got to piece all those pieces together. And when I look back on it, it it's, it's the challenges that I was able to overcome between the big points, between the Beach Boys and the Treasure Isles and the Whalen Jennings. It were those moments or those days or whatever that sustained me and challenged me. And that's why I want to call it between hits. Well, look, there's uh, Fred, there's no uh, life is a beautiful thing, but there's no uh, coincidences. Uh, it's up to us to make things happen. So I think that there is a thread that weaves throughout your life. And I'm interested to read what that thread is because uh, I think that's going to be the secret sauce to uh, between the between You're hits. right. The secret yeah. sauce. The secret sauce. You're right. Fred, love you. Um, I look forward to seeing you again soon. And thanks so much for giving us a brief tour. I do. I told you, next time you come back here, you know, you and Josh need to come by the studio. I am and there. See, you know, see where all the action is. See the, Absolutely. You know, kind of see the facility and where all the, the magic has taken place over the over the last 30 years. Can't wait years. to do it. Thanks so much. Okay. Fred Vale is the owner of Treasure Isle Recorders and teaches the history of American music at Lipscomb University. He joined us from Nashville. I'm Sean Smith. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.